Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob. And here, James Jordan is going to be discussing Genesis chapter 47, verses 7 through 31, where Joseph leads during the famine. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 47 and the life of Jacob. We're still on the center of this passage, passage that is chapters 46 and 47, which begins with God promising Israel to bless him and ends with Joseph making a covenant promise and an oath to Jacob to bless him to bring his bones back to the land of promise. And as is so often the case, there's a general chiastic structure. And we're at the center of it here. The center of this passage is the blessing of Pharaoh by Jacob. And so we'll read that in verses 7 to 10 and then make a few comments on it. Joseph brought Jacob his father and had him stand in Pharaoh's presence. And Jacob gave Pharaoh a blessing of greeting. It just says blessing here. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days and years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days and the years of my sojourn are one hundred years and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days and the years of my life. They have not attained to the days and the years of my father's lives in the days of their sojourn. And Jacob gave Pharaoh a blessing of farewell. He's got down here, but it's just the word blessing. And went out from Pharaoh's presence. I guess this is like that Hawaiian word aloha. That means hello and goodbye. But it's just the word blessing. And I don't know that we should say blessing of greeting and blessing of farewell like Fox does here. I think that's a little bit more than that. Well, the structure I've got down here is pretty simple. You go into Pharaoh's presence, you bless him, you talk to him, you bless him again, and you leave. That's just how it happened. So it makes a nice chiasm. This is one of those cases where we can see that life is chiastic. (laughs) This morning, you got out of the bed, you took off your pajamas, you put on your clothes, you left the house, then you're going to go back to your house, and tonight you're going to take off your clothes, put on your pajamas, and get back in the bed. That's a chiasm, isn't it? So life is full of things like this, there and back again. So that's all this is. But it is interesting that we have these two blessings here. Now, first of all, since the greater blesses the lesser, Pharaoh's initial submission is a sign of his faith. I mean, Pharaoh doesn't need to be blessed by Jacob. People are coming to see him all the time from foreign countries, and he doesn't say, oh, would you Ishmaelites bless me here? When George Bush receives the ambassador from France, does he say, would you bless me? You don't normally do that. This is a sign of Pharaoh's faith and conversion, which we've discussed before. Now, the fact that Pharaoh wants to be blessed again after hearing Jacob's horrible story is a further sign of his faith. When I have preached on this, it's been kind of fun to say, Jacob tells him all the rotten things that had happened to him and how 
his father had abused him for nearly 77 years and how Laban had abused him and how his wives fought and how his sons murdered people and how he had to go from here to there and he never was able to settle down and how awful it's been. And he thought his son had been killed and he almost lost his other son. And after telling him all the bad and evil things that had happened to him in his life, Pharaoh says, well, Mom and Ra has never treated me like this, so you can keep your Yahweh and you all live down in Goshen and I'll stick with my gods. But of course he doesn't do that. He's willing to take even the chastisements from whom the Lord loves. He chastens and he scourges every son whom he receives, as Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12. And whatever Pharaoh understands, he's willing to be blessed again after hearing the story. And that's why I think there are two blessings here. I don't think it's a hello and goodbye blessing. I think that it's given to us twice to show that Pharaoh is still wanting to be blessed by Yahweh. He still wants to be a part of Yahweh's kingdom, even after hearing how Yahweh treats his chief servant. And that's a good sign of Pharaoh's faith. We can ask him about it in heaven and see if I've interpreted this right, because that's where he is. That's the center of things here. And see, I think that's, again, carrying forward the theme that God called Abraham to be a blessing to the Gentiles. And that's always where this goes. The great sin in the Gospels and in Acts in the New Testament that Jesus charges the Pharisees with is their failure to have that mission. Your whole purpose for being selected as the nation Israel in the first place was so you could minister to the Gentiles, and all you're doing is sitting around saying, we're elect and you're not. And you're doing the opposite. You're not living for others. And that was their whole purpose, and here the book of Genesis ends with that purpose being fulfilled in this wonderful way. And the Gentiles happily receiving the kingdom of God from the priestly people. Well then, as we back back out of the center of this, we have another statement about Israel settling in the land of Goshen, except that for some reason it's called the land of Ramses, and I'm not quite sure why. In fact, I have no idea why. Verses 11 and 12. Joseph settled his father and his brothers, giving them holdings in the land of Egypt. Now, that's important. Holdings or whatever your Bible says, property. That's going to contrast with the next thing we're going to read, which is the Egyptians losing all of their property. And then it will be said again that Jacob and Israel held property in Egypt. And there's a reason for that. Joseph settled his father and his brothers, giving them holdings in the land of Egypt, in the best part of the land, in the region of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. So the region of Ramesses is the same as the region of Goshen. And Joseph sustained his father, his brothers, and his father's entire household with bread in proportion to the little ones. We still see Joseph as the bread giver here. Now, apparently... The name Ramesses, or place of Ra, the sun, region of the sun, is not an early Egyptian name. And so all the commentators, most conservative, obviously, to the most liberal. Well, the liberal ones say this was all written after the exile anyway, so that's why it's called that. The conservative ones say this is an editorial edition. It, it, probably, originally, it said in the region of Goshen here, but... Samuel or somebody has gone back in here, Samuel or Ezra, and said, let's make this change under divine inspiration. Let's change it so that readers will know that Goshen and Ramesses are the same regions. Later on, 
we're told in Exodus chapter 1 that they built the Israelites when they're making palaces for Pharaoh at the beginning of Exodus. Of course, they make a palace for Jehovah at the end of Exodus. But at the beginning of Exodus, it says they built these storage cities, Python and Ramesses, in verse 11. And again, probably was not called Ramesses when they built it. That's the name later on. We have this other places in Genesis, of course. The town of Bela is called Zoar in chapter 14. It says the five cities of the circle of the Jordan, Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim and Bela, and then in parenthesis in our Bibles, that is Zoar, because later on it's called Zoar, but in Abraham's day it was called Bela. That's all this seems to be designed. So if we know where the region of Ramesses is, we know where Goshen is. Of course, the problem now is that we don't know either one. So when you draw a map, no one's exactly sure where this area was. And, I don't know, maybe the use of the word Ra here is to say it was a land of sunshine. I don't know. But that's all we can do with that. Now we get to the tough part. And there have been articles written in the past about the wickedness of Joseph for what he does here. I remember articles in the Freeman magazine talking about how this is a perfect example of socialism and even communism as Joseph who may have been a hero in some ways, takes advantage of these people's plight to put them into permanent slavery to the state. And we're going to have to explore that just a little bit, but first of all, let's read it and look at what's here and then ask the kind of questions that we as modern people have to ask about this. Is this something wrong, or how do we understand it? I think right off the bat we have to say, it's not wrong, and... As the Egyptians themselves repeatedly say, you have saved us, you have delivered us, you have blessed us. To them, it's not enslavement, it's deliverance. And Joseph is one who does good for the Gentiles, and so in some way this is good. I think we have to start off with these assumptions and then seek understanding. But let's get the facts before us first in verses 13 to 26, and we'll take this by stages. The first phase which I've got down here maybe as a guess, is in the fourth year. But bread, there was none in all the land, verse 13. For the famine was exceedingly heavy, and the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan were exhausted by the famine. And Yosef had collected all the silver that was to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan from the rations that they had bought. And Yosef had brought the silver into Pharaoh's house. Now, because the third thing they do is sell themselves and their land, and the second thing they do is sell their animals, I'm just backdating this. If selling yourself and your land connects to the sixth day, persons in the Garden of Eden and the selling of the animals might connect to the fifth day when animals were made for the first time, then maybe since gold and silver are connected with the sun and the moon in the Bible, trading in their silver might be connected with the fourth day. And if that kind of a guess is right, then maybe we're in the fourth year here, the fifth and then the sixth year, and then finally we would come to the Sabbath. But we're not told that. It's just a guess. And I just stuck it in for fun. One thing I do want to point out is that for some reason we are told that the famine was heavy in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan. When I thought we left the land of Canaan, 
And why is it being brought up here? It's brought up three times. Verse 13, verse 14, then again in verse 15, when the silver in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan had run out, all the Egyptians came to Joseph saying, well, I think what this does is it informs us again of something that's hinted at throughout Genesis and is certainly as clear as ever here, that Canaan was under Egypt throughout the patriarchal period. The reason Abraham went down to Egypt right after he came in the promised land was that Egypt was basically running the promised land. The Philistines, who were partly Egyptians, were there, but Egypt had hegemony over the entire area, and that's why when it says in Exodus that Israel dwelt in Egypt for 430 years, Paul says that 430 years begins with Abraham. So we've really been in Egypt the entire time, but we've been in the outskirts of Egypt. Canaan is part of Egyptian territory. It's like Puerto Rico is for us. The Egyptians were in charge of it, but it wasn't technically part of Egypt. But if you were in trouble in Canaan, you ran down to Egypt. If the Babylonians decided they wanted to move into the land of Canaan, the Egyptians would have gone up there with their army and said, nope, this is under our protection. We're in charge up here. So for some reason, though, and I'm not sure exactly why, I have no idea why the text says Egypt and Canaan here and then drops it and just talks about the Egyptians later on. Somehow or other, just to bring a focus down. That's the first phase, the first year that we're talking about, whichever year it is, the third year or the fourth year, they trade in all their silver and by implication all their gold and all their valuables in order to get rations. That's the word used here, rations, food. Then we have a second phase in the next year. They trade in their livestock for bread. The word bread is used, verse 15 and 17. When the silver in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan had run out, all the Egyptians came to Joseph, saying, there's nothing about Canaanites coming to them, so I don't know what this means. If all the Egyptians includes the Canaanites because they're living under Egyptian hegemony, or what? I don't know. There's some curiosities here that the commentators didn't discuss, and I couldn't figure out any great reason for either, except the trivia that I pointed out that Canaan was under Egypt, but... That doesn't explain why it's mentioned here and reiterated here. All the Egyptians came to Joseph saying, Come now, bread, why should we die in front of you? Because the silver is gone. And Joseph said, Come now, your livestock, and I will give you for your livestock since the silver is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread for the horses, the sheep livestock, the oxen livestock, and the donkeys. And he got them through with bread, for all their livestock in that year. Well, animals were first made on the fifth day and then on the first half of the sixth day, so maybe these animals are linking up with the fifth year somehow. Don't know. The other thing is, did they sell all their animals off so that they belonged to Pharaoh and they never had their animals again? It's doubtful that's the case. Most of the experts in the ancient Near East who look at this passage say, we're looking at a mortgage situation here similar to the land, and they get to keep land, or they get new land, but it's theirs. In one sense, and in another sense, it's not. Pharaoh would have no use for all this stuff, and the people would need it, and if the economy of the land is to recover, the people will need to have these things back. So it's more like they pawned them 
And when they recovered their money, they were able to get them back. So we don't know for sure, but what is stressed here is that now they have to give up their animals in exchange for bread, not rations this time. The word bread is used. And now we come to the climax of it in verses 18 to 26. They have to sell their persons and their land for seed, seed to plant with. Of course, they also need bread to eat. But now the stress comes to be on seed so they can plant and start to recover, and so the land doesn't become a desert. If you don't plant anything, it becomes a desert. You need some type of vegetation going. Even if it's not growing very well, you got to have something there. And the reason the Sahara Desert is so big and gets bigger every year is because if you don't keep stuff growing, it will creep in. Well, that's what's going to happen in Brazil. If you take down the jungle in Brazil, nothing grows there. There's no soil there. It's just sand underneath that jungle. And the concern is if you take too much of it down, then you'll start to have desert creep. So the people trying to clear the jungle down in Brazil are having to be careful to make sure they don't clear too much of it in any one place and they don't destroy the ecosystem because there's no soil underneath it. It's basically pretty much a desert underneath it, which is what the Sahara is like. The Sahara Desert didn't used to be anywhere near as big as it is now. So this is the kind of thing that you have to be concerned about. And they come asking for seed as well as bread. Well, let's read this whole thing, and then we'll go back and comment on it. Starting in verse 18. When that year had run out, they came back to him in the second year or next year which I have guessed is the sixth, might be the fifth, and said to him, We cannot hide from my Lord that if the silver has run out and the animal stocks are my Lord's, nothing remains for my Lord except our bodies and our soil. Why should we die before your eyes? So we sow our soil. Interesting, it says that they will die and the land will die, which is quite true. If anything planted on it, There won't be any biological matter in the soil after a while, and it'll become a desert. Acquire us and our soil for bread, and we and our soil will become servants to Pharaoh. Give seed for sowing, that we may live and not die, and that the soil may not become desolate. So bread for us and seed for the soil. So Yosef acquired all the soil of Egypt for Pharaoh, for each of the Egyptians sold his field, For the famine was strong upon them, and the land went over to Pharaoh. Now we come to a hard verse. As for the people, he transferred them into the cities from one edge of Egypt's border to the other edge. We'll come back to that. I don't think that's what it means. Why would he put them all in the cities? They need to be out there farming the soil. I don't think he did. I don't think that's the best translation, but we'll come back to it. Only the soil of the priests he did not acquire. For the priests had a prescribed allocation from Pharaoh, and they ate from their allocation that Pharaoh had given them. Therefore, they did not sell their soil. And Joseph said to the people, Now I have acquired you and your soil today for Pharaoh. Behold, you have seed, sow the soil. But it shall come to pass at the ingatherings that you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four other hands being for you. Literally what it says, four hands for you, one hand for Pharaoh by implication. As seed for the field and for your eating needs, for those in your households and for feeding your little ones. And they said, 
You have saved our lives. May we find favor in my Lord's eyes. We will become slaves to Pharaoh. And Joseph made it a prescribed law until this day concerning the soil of Egypt. For Pharaoh, every fifth part, only the soil of the priests, that alone did not go over to Pharaoh. And now I'm going to read one more here. And Israel stayed in the land of Egypt in the region of Goshen. They obtained holdings property and it bore fruit and became exceedingly many. Notice that the Israelites are just like the priests. And that's the important connection there. Well, let's look at the details here. In verses 18 and 19, the people make the offer. And this refrain, that we may live and not die, that has been all through this passage, shows up here again in verse 19. That's what Jacob said when he sent the brothers down to Egypt. Go get grain so that we may live and not die. And that's what Joseph had said to him when he threw him into prison. And so this refrain keeps coming up. Live and not die. Now applied to the Egyptians. And they are going to be given bread, but also see that the land not become a desert. That's what they are concerned with here. It's been going for some time and the land is starting to die. So they need something to eat and the land needs something to eat as well. Well, the land becomes Pharaoh's in verses 20 and 21. Now, this business in verse 21 about transferring them into the cities. If you have Fox down at the bottom, he's got transferred them. Hebrew difficult, some read, enslaved them. As for the people, he reduced them to slavery from one end of Egypt to the other. And that's because the Samaritan and Greek versions of the Old Testament read that way. But there is, I think, a better way to read it. Instead of reading, he transferred them into the cities... It can be translated, he transferred them city-wise from one end of Egypt's border to the other end or edge. And what that would mean is he moved the people around group by group. He moved the people from Tyler over to Niceville. And he moved all the people in the Niceville area to the Memphis area. And he moved all the people in the Memphis area down to the Pishon area, and he moved all the people from the Pishon area up to the Tyler area. So that group by group, he shifted them around. Now, why would he do that? Well, there are several reasons, and that makes a certain amount of sense. City by city would mean city and all the people around it, town by town, group by group, community by community. Why would he do that? Well, it would mean that each group of Egyptians experienced the same kind of pilgrimage or exodus as the Israelites had done. Just as the Israelites had left a dead place to come to the land of Goshen where they would find new life, the Egyptians would go through the same experience, moving them from place to place. It would also have the effect of breaking up their old patterns of life because the gods that all of these people worship in the ancient world are local gods. But the gods that are around here, that old tree over there that's been there for so long, it has a special spirit in it. And that brook over here that babbles, it's got a special naiad in it. And that's how all religions in the ancient world are that way. They have high gods that are associated with the state, and they have household gods that are associated with their family, and they have little nature gods everywhere. Not till you get Greek philosophy do you find anybody saying all is water. That's what Thales said, right? Remember that? Thales, all is water. What does he mean? He means all water is the same. There aren't any spirits in water. A different spirit here, a different spirit here, a different spirit here. 
Water is water. Because he's an atheist. He's rejecting all these gods. Well, moving people around dislocates them from their environment and puts them into a new environment. If they're becoming believers, that's one way to do it. It's what God does. Very interesting. God shifts his people around, partly to break up these kinds of idolatrous loyalties. Now, nothing is said about that here, but just exploring reasons why he might do this, that's one possibility. It doesn't make any sense to say he's giving them seed so they can plant crops, and then he moves them all into the cities. That doesn't make any sense. The whole point of giving them seed is so they can plant their crops now and keep the land going. But if he shifts them all from one location to another, then they become just like the Israelites. They've come to have the faith of the Israelites. They have come under Joseph's government, just as the Israelites have. And therefore, just as the Israelites have moved from a place where there's famine into a new place where they can plant crops, so that same experience now is given to the Egyptians community by community. They get to stay together as a community but they shift to a new place. So that makes a lot of sense to me, but it may not be the best answer. That is the traditional rabbinic explanation of this verse. And that's where I found it was in reading Jewish commentaries. The Christian commentaries didn't mention it as a possibility. But it works linguistically. and seems to fit the context and the theology. Well, verse 22 only the soil of the priests he did not acquire. The priestly land is exempted because they are taken care of by Pharaoh, who is the head of church and state in Egypt. He is, like Melchizedek, a priest king. And in Israel, there's going to be a separation of church and state. But in all these other nations, whether you're Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh or Ben-Hadad or Melchizedek, you are both priest and king at the top of the nation. And that's going to be my explanation for why Pharaoh gets a fifth. He gets two tithes, one for his position as high priest and one for his position as king. But because Pharaoh is the high priest as well as the king, who remembers what the word Pharaoh means? It means great house. In Persian equivalent is Artaxerxes, also means great house. The land of Egypt is a house. And they are all dwelling in Pharaoh, just as you and I live in Christ. They were dwelling in Pharaoh, the great house. And so, as high priest, he takes care of the priests, and they are exempted from this. Now, of course, that's what the Lord is going to do with Israel. They come into the promised land. The Levites are exempted from all the land laws. So let's continue here, and we'll say a bit more about that. Verses 23 to 26 describes the new arrangement. And he says, from now on, Pharaoh owns all the land, and you lease it from him, and you give him a fifth. Well, the fact is, that's how it was in Egypt. And that's how it was in Israel, too. You read Leviticus chapter 25, Israel leases their land from Jehovah. And in the 50th year, it all reverts to Yahweh and is his land for a year. And they can't do anything with it. They're not to do anything with it. That's how the king is. And not only in Egypt is that how it is, but that's pretty much how it is wherever you have a developed society. If you've got a tribal village society, then it's not going to be that way. But even today, we have eminent domain. Even today, we have property taxes. The fact that the state can tax your property 
means the state has an implicit claim of superior ownership over all the land. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't like it. I don't think the state ought to tax property. But we've sure been doing it in America ever since the beginning, as far as I know. And you have to have some kinds of eminent domain for the state. There have to be some situations in which the, the society as a whole expressed through its rulers can work through private property. Private property is not absolute, but this is not as unusual as we might initially think. Oh, well, all the land's going to belong to Pharaoh, and these people will just lease it out. Well, that's how it was everywhere. That's how it was in England. Maybe not the king, but aristocrats, that's how it is. And so it's not unusual, and we know that's how it was in Egypt. We just don't know when it came about. Now, maybe it was already partly this way, and Joseph just did it again, or something. Or maybe this is how it came to pass. Maybe up till this time the Egyptians had been more of a village culture and now they are converted into more of a national culture with the king as titular owner of all the land. But whatever the case may be, this is how it was in Egypt and it's not at all unusual. Verse 23 seems to imply that if he is commanding them to sow the soil and he's going to give them seed, he would have had to return some of at least some of their animals back to them in order for them to cultivate the land. Yeah, that's true too. Good point. If they're going to sow the soil, they would need oxen and other animals for that purpose. And so this may be carrying an implication that some of the animals that had been mortgaged or sold are going to be returned at this point. Since the land now belongs to Pharaoh, then he can give the animals back to him too. It all belongs to Pharaoh. So that's a good point. Oh, I've already anticipated this. Yahweh, owning all the land of Israel, will take a tenth of it. He says, the land is mine. You're leasing it from me. You give me 10% of your animals and crops. Joseph requires 20%. Several things could be said about this. The Lord asks for 10% of animals as well as plant crops. Joseph has taken 20% of their plant crops. Nothing said about sheep and oxen and all the rest of them being tithed off to Pharaoh. So maybe practically speaking, it's not that much more than what the Lord would take. But the best guess that I've ever seen is that since Pharaoh is head of church and state, you basically got 10% for the church and 10% for the state as an explanation. There are probably other explanations too. We're not told exactly why he selected this. Maybe I'll think of something better by next week and have something more to share with you. Well, let's think about this just in terms of our problematics as Christians today. One possibility that I used to hold two years ago was that, well, these people are pagans, and pagans are by nature slaves, and Christians enslave the pagans, and pagans work for us. And later on in the Bible it talks this way. It says that the pagans will be the servants of the believers. That's what's happening here. And God is just bringing it to pass. Since they're slaves by nature, they get enslaved by the believers. Well, I don't think that's implied. All the implication is that these Egyptians have converted and that Joseph is their deliverer. And they certainly aren't regretting what has happened to themselves, so I think we need to set aside that notion. The Egyptians viewed this as a salvation and not as enslavement, and Joseph is presented as the savior of the world. What we can say is that I think we get infected. I know that I was when I was younger with the notion that it's either freedom or security. 
I guess Rush Limbaugh was on this again the other week. Some people, they just want security. And they're willing to give up all their freedom just to get security. Well, that's not really how it is. Yeah, sometimes you can see that kind of thing. But if you stop and think about it, these governments and societies that don't have any freedom don't have any security either. I mean, if you live in Russia or China, you don't have any freedom and the government takes care of you from beginning to end, but you never know when there's going to come a knock on the door. You're not exactly happy, and you're not exactly secure. On the other hand, if you have complete freedom and you're absolutely in charge of anything and you don't have any safety net to fall back on in the way of inheritance or savings or a church or anything else, if you don't have any security factors in your life, you're not very free. You're scared to do anything. So in terms of human psychology, these things actually go together. The more secure we feel, the more free we are to act. And the more insecure we feel, the more timid we're going to be in terms of our activity, unless we're an exceptional kind of person. People vary. There's always your mountain man type who likes living off by himself in the woods. Most people aren't like that. That's not moral superiority. Rugged individualism like that is not morally superior to living graciously in community. It's just that a few people have that kind of temperament. So there's a very real sense in which you have to be very careful with this some people want freedom, some people want security thing. Actually, they go together. And if you're not very free, you're not very secure. And if you're not very secure, you're not very free. And there's a lot of different nuances to that, which we don't need to go into. What we need to see here is these people are much more free when they've got food and they're taken care of by Pharaoh, than they are when they're afraid they're going to die. They don't give up freedom for security. What they give up is death for a new kind of freedom and security. Another thing that we have to say is that everybody is a slave. Man is by nature a slave. It's just a matter of whose slave you are. Are you going to be a slave of God and be free under God's law? Or are you going to be a slave of Satan? Well, you've got a converted Pharaoh here, and you've got Joseph to become a slave, an indentured servant or whatever, of a believing representative of God is itself liberty. And that's how they see it. And then a final observation is, quotation from Lowenthal here, what kind of serfdom is it that grants four-fifths of the produce to the serf? This is very generous type of serfdom here. A lot better than what people in medieval Europe experienced, and certainly a lot better than what chattel slaves in the Old South ever experienced. They didn't get anything. Or if the owner was very, very generous, he might say, if you work on Saturday afternoon, you can keep what you have then. Well, that isn't four-fifths. So for these people to say, we've sold ourselves and our property, and then to be told, you only have to give a fifth to Pharaoh in the future, is actually pretty generous, and it's not what we would think of as enslavement. So the word slave is used here, but what is actually described is a very generous and easy kind of serfdom, and it's a salvation. They have moved out of an old death situation into a new life situation. It is more organized, apparently, than what they had before. And then I guess finally we have to say this is a stage in history. We're not in the New Covenant yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't been poured out yet. What is a deliverance and a forward movement for these people isn't the last movement in history. There'll come a time when it's better 
to have your own property and in no sense be leasing it from the state. But these are all stages along the way. When you're a child, you do every last thing your parents tell you. When you're 15 or 16, they let you drive the car, then you can drive and go someplace that they don't see because you've been given more responsibility, but you're still not out on your own. There are stages, and this is a positive step forward in history. That's a positive step forward for these people. And just because looking back at it from the 20th century, from the New Covenant, we would say we wouldn't want to go back to that. It doesn't mean it wasn't a move forward for them. Same is true with the law. Coming under the law at Mount Sinai is a tremendous step forward for Israel. But we're told that we have something better and that we should not go back under the law in that sense. So I think those are ways to understand this and not get caught up in thinking, well, Joseph did something bad here reducing these people to slavery to the state where they were originally a bunch of free mountain men and American rugged individualists. I don't think that was the case at all. These are people who are about to die. And this was a deliverance for them. It was a step forward for them. But it wasn't all the way the New Covenant yet. It was just partly. I'll stop rambling here. But the parallel between this setup and what the Lord himself does in Israel later on is important. Because we're not going to say that it was bad for the Lord to own the land and the people to lease it from him and have to give him a tithe. And if that's the case, then a believing Pharaoh isn't necessarily wrong either. It's just a stage in history. We don't have the Jubilee Law together today, and we don't have this situation today. Those are just some thoughts. If you have ever wrestled with this passage, maybe that helps you. Maybe you never even worried about it. But over the years, I have read all kinds of stuff on this, and those are my thoughts. We can finish this out, and we'll be done with this whole section. Chapter 47, 27, and 28 as we march back out toward the end of this passage, reiterates that they have come to the land of Goshen, that they obtained holdings in it. And then it says they bore fruit and became exceedingly many. They were fruitful and multiplied, is what it says. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. and the days of Jacob, the years of his life were seven years and 140 years. Just two things to notice, really. Three, I guess, if you want. The fact that Israel owned land and was not under these requirements makes them like the priests. And I think that's why the exemption for the priests is stressed above, that these are the priestly people. And so in Egypt, they have the same kind of position that the priests have. And then in terms of the book of Genesis, where God tells us at the beginning to be fruitful and multiply, here we see they're doing it. They're fruitful and multiplying. Same language, same words, and that's it's deliberate, that redemption has largely come about, and Genesis ends on these very positive notes. The world is converted, the cultural mandate's being fulfilled, the salvation has come, we're back in a garden like the land of Goshen. Remember what is said about the land of Egypt in chapter 13, verse 10. It says that the area of Sodom and Gomorrah was like the land of Egypt, and like the Garden of Eden. So when you're down in Egypt, you're going back to the Garden of Eden, and when you're going into the best part of Egypt, you're going into the best part of the Garden of Eden. And so everything is being returned here at the end of Genesis to show the initial fulfillment of the promises made after Adam fell into sin. 
They're back in the garden. They're being fruitful and multiplying, although this isn't the end of the story, and we will have to continue on to Exodus if we want to read everything. And then we're told that he lived for 17 years in Egypt. The number 17 runs all the way through these patriarchal lifespans. Somewhere back in your notes, I've got a chart that shows that. Yeah, 147 years factors into 7 times 7, 49, times 3 gives you 147. Well, if you add 7 and 7 and 3, you get 17. And the lifespan of Jacob is 5 times 5 times 4, as I recall. And that adds up to that and up to 17. It's back in your notes somewhere. But all three patriarchs have the same structure in their lifespan, and in every case the factors add up to 17. 17 is 10 plus 7, and I guess we have to see that as sort of a number of double completeness here. In Egypt, it would have been five years of famine and 12 of prosperity. We come to these final promises in 29 to 31. Now, when Israel's days drew near to death, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Pray, if I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh. Deal with me faithfully and truly. Pray, do not bury me in Egypt. When I lie down with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial site. And he said, I will do according to your words. But he said, Swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed at the head of the bed. Israel, Jacob, these names go back and forth in terms of whether it's being stressed that he is the head of the nation or simply an individual. And the fact that the name Israel is used here, he says, Bring me back up out of Egypt. He's speaking not just for himself, then, but by implication for all the people to come back up as well. This business of putting the hand under the thigh, we looked at way back when we started this in chapter 24, verse 2. You put your hand down here and you're exposing yourself to risk, obviously. The hand that's under the thigh can do a good deal of damage. And what you're saying is, well, let's just say I trust you with the family jewels, as we say in English. I expose everything to you and I'm putting myself completely in your hands here. You could do me tremendous damage if you don't keep this promise And the promise has to do with the future somehow because the organs of generation have to do with the future. And he says, in this case, bring me back up. Well, it's not just sentimentality that makes him want to be taken back into the promised land. As I said, it's a sign that the entire nation will go because it's Israel who wants to be taken up. And also, it would become a symbolic thing. This sarcophagus... Well, it's actually Joseph whose sarcophagus is there all during the centuries. But taking Jacob back up to the promised land would be a sign that they could look back to that they themselves would also go back up to the promised land. And then finally we have this last phrase, Israel bowed at the head of the bed. The Greek version of the Old Testament says he bowed on his staff. There's really no reason to prefer that. Why it says he bowed at the head of his bed is an open question. Does it mean that he was exhausted and fell back? Does he mean that he bowed in prayer? Why at the head of his bed? Or why on his staff if you want to go with the Greek? I don't know. But seem to be a worship and thanksgiving is the main implication here, but the reason for the details is a bit of a mystery. Well, that's it. We have finished this section and at least ramble through one of the difficult passages in Genesis. And next time we'll start looking at these final blessings. 
Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm